Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. How much cash do you guys have on you right now? I don't carry any, so we're starting off. I have zero dollars, but I have a rain check for some chicken wings. <laughs> and what is this? Sorry, a rain check for chicken wings? I have a health card renewal trans- transaction receipt, <laughs> even though I have that in my wallet, I think. Yeah, this is expired to be redeemed by October 13th. Oh, that's not the oldest thing I've <laughs> unfortunately left in my wallet. Brad, do you have any cash on you? I usually have anywhere from 40 to 100 on me. Okay. Let's, guessing it's closer to 40 right now. I My wallet's across the room. I'm trying to eyeball it. Let's call it a generous 100. I'll see what I can steal from Mel or Abby. So between us, let's say, let's between the three of us, let's say 150. And if every listener gives us a dollar, then if we round uh, the numbers up or down, we still need about $900 million to buy the Ottawa Senators. But we're getting there. We're close. <laughs> and here's the thing. I'm not entirely interested in owning the Ottawa Senators. I am interested in trading Tim Stutzla to Detroit so he can play with Mo Sider. I'm more interested about Evan's chicken wings, honestly. Hey, it's all about the journey. I clearly forgot that that was in there. <laughs> I'd be devastated if I was you. I just don't understand how you need a rain check. Well, folks, uh, because we are still not even close to being the owners of the uh, Ottawa Senators... Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast, where we're here to talk to you about the Detroit Red Wings, the NHL. Uh, have a fun interview today and uh, everything else in the world of hockey. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I'm Brad Crisco. And I'm Evan. On this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast, we are going to be, yes, talking about the Red Wings game against Buffalo, which uh, I believe, Evan, you called it a measuring stick game, which doesn't bode well. I'm, I shouldn't have said anything. No, you have... As, as per usual, none, none of us should have said anything. I uh, will be talking about how the Red Wings fared against Buffalo and their schedule ahead. Uh, we also have a interview with, uh, for the first time ever with Sean Shapiro, uh, his first time joining the Winged Wheel podcast. We'll be talking about the Red Wings, some national news, um, the concept of, of what selling teams has been like and, and how much team values have jumped. Uh, and then we're going to get into uh, a little bit of talk about Red Wings prospects and how well they've been doing. Some NHL news like the sale of the Ottawa Senators, like what Connor McDavid is doing, uh, like whatever the hell is going on in Toronto. And then we'll get into overtime questions and whatever else comes up. But first, we want to tell everyone uh, about Hot Stove Stories with Mickey and Ken. Uh, it is a, an event run by the Jamie Daniels Foundation, an organization that we're very, very proud to uh, support and partner with. So Hot Stove, Hot Stove Stories is on Thursday, December 1st. It's a morning breakfast event, so 7.30 to 9.30 roughly. Uh, breakfast will be provided. Uh, in addition to uh, hearing from Mickey and Ken and getting their takes and hockey stories and everything, there are going to be some big names there. Red Wings legends Chris Draper and Chris Osgood, uh, some of the biggest names uh, in NHL refereeing in West McCauley and former referee Dan O'Halloran. Uh, I'll be there to uh, play referee, funny enough, and uh, it's going to be a great time. It's going to be a great way to kick off the day. There's going to be a live auction, and there is also uh, a silent auction that's kicking off about a couple weeks prior, and there are a ton of great things uh, going in there. We've mentioned on previous episodes, Ken has a really, really uh, uh, good stash of stuff to come up in these auctions. So make sure you get your tickets, jamiedanielsfoundation.org. We want to fill that room at Motor Motor City Casino Thursday, December 1st uh, in the AM. So jamiedanielsfoundation.org. 
The Buffalo Sabres are a measuring stick team for the Detroit Red Wings. They beat Detroit 8-3. It is increasingly difficult, as we have said, you know, deep breaths. There are going to be growing pains. It's not going to be pretty. Just last episode, it was like the, the, the path to success. It's not going to be sexy. It's not going to be, you know, newsworthy every single time. But the 8-3 loss is, in my mind, that just jumps a little bit past the line of what's bearable. You know, Buffalo dominated Detroit all game. They did. Plain and simple. That was Buffalo's game through and through. At no point was Detroit really in it in terms of balance of play. I mean, Eric Comrie did allow Detroit to make it close. At one point, it was a one-goal game, which was absolutely a miracle, really, akin to the Boston game where, you know, Adam Ernie broke through and all of a sudden Detroit was within a goal. Um, But yeah, Tage Thompson and the Buffalo Sabres ran away with it. And to me, that's the kind of game where it's like, no, there's no five-alarm fire. You know, I'm not ringing any alarm bells, but priority one has to be to get rid of those absolute implosions once things don't go Detroit's way. Yeah, and, you know, you could... If we're looking at the season as a whole so far, you can pick a narrative based on how you want to present how the season's gone. On the optimistic side, every close game the Red Wings have been in, they have won or gotten a point out of. If you want to go the narrative on the other one, that's because their three losses were absolute blowouts. At which they looked like they got run out of the building all three times. And what did we say in the offseason? It's fine to lose. This team's a team in transition. We're not expecting to make the playoffs. But you can't keep getting embarrassed like you did last season. They're 4-3-2. and two. So if I were to look at this season, including the Sabres game, just on their record, I'm thrilled. 4-3-2 and two is fantastic. Bit of an easy schedule, but hey, you can only play the schedule you have. But the context of, they're, they've already been blown out three times. And, you know, Buffalo looked good, and Buffalo's been better than people thought this year. They're not a powerhouse. Getting blown out by the Bruins makes a lot of sense. Seeing how the season's been going, getting blown out by the Devils makes a lot of sense. They've been phenomenal this year. Buffalo's been good, but they're not that team. So the Red Wings, by and large, are better than I thought they'd be, but it is concerning that this trend has not corrected itself. That game was a combination of Alex Nedeljkovic got no support. You know, the Red Wings defense got caved. The shot opportunities, the the high danger chances, whatever you want to look at, it was absolutely all in Buffalo's favor. And Nedeljkovic was bad. Like that, he had at least I think two goals that I don't think should have gotten through. Um, that spot over his left shoulder, just on the inside of his glove hand, um, he got beat there twice, and I think Buffalo knew that. You know, there was an awkward deflection, which I, I know on the balance of the game, it's easy to blame him for that one. That, But that was just an unfortunate redirect. Uh, but if your defense is getting caved and your goalie is letting in a couple stinkers that game, it's just not going well. But, you know, Nindelkovic wasn't the whole story of the game. Nindelkovic wasn't eight goals against. That was Detroit as a team, like you mentioned, Brad. 
They got just simply outplayed by, you know, Buffalo is a better team right now in the way that they're playing and probably in terms of their roster on paper, but I don't think it was an 8-3 disparity. I'm not concerned over the balance of an 82-game season. Like I said, I'm not ringing any alarm bells, but Derek Lalone would be the first one to tell you, like, the mentality of of hanging in games and and making it tough to play against you and uh, just not letting things get out of hand like that, that has to be one of the first priorities. doesn't matter how tough the systems are to deploy. You know, it doesn't matter how banged up you are. This isn't the world's most depleted roster. It certainly is very heavy. They have some very heavy injuries against, and, and that's why I'm not, like you said, 4-3-2 and two is not bad for how much injury they're dealing with, but you can't lose like this. You just have to find a way that has to be the first thing they figure out is how, basically how to keep their wits about them, how to let not let the rope get uh, get dragged away with the anchor, so to speak. They flatly were not good, and they need to just erase that game from their memory and, and, and learn from it. So, you know, Detroit's third pair, for example, of Hague and Lindstrom, Lindstrom are, it's going about as you'd expect. You know, it's not in, going entirely well. Ole Mata continues to be one of the only bright spots of the season in terms of his output, which is a funny thing to say out loud, considering uh, what people were expecting uh, coming into the year. But pretty much, it, it's it's a lot of the same stories last season, right? Like, if Mo Sider isn't absolutely taking over, then this defense is not giving the goalie any help and this defense is getting otherwise dominated. There's good and bad to it all. Has Sider been bad? No. Has Sider been as good as he was last season or as good as he can be? No, not even close. Has has uh, Sherratt been uh, bad or, or provided no value? No, I, I think it's very clear the kind of value that he's brought to this team. Has he been a perfect top-pairing defenseman? No. You know, Mata and Roenick and, and Hagen and Lindstrom, there's something to be said for all of it, but it all isn't right now amounting to a blue line that is can keep a team in the game. And then you have how many of the Red Wings' top producing forwards not in there. Larkin will break through usually for, for something during the game. He's been one of Detroit's best players. But outside of that, it's it's kind of a crapshoot. Will it be Kubelik? Will it be Perron? They're not exactly firing on all cylinders. So, you know, we're not going to dwell on it too much. Like you said, Evan, they just need to go ahead and forget the game. Uh, they have quite a bit ahead of them. Uh, three games before our next episode, Thursday, uh, against Washington at home and Saturday against the Islanders at home. Those are uh, the 97-98 Cup celebrations. So those will be good nights. And then uh, on the 6th, they're on the road against the Rangers and we'll be recording and posting right after that. Um, it doesn't even need to be that the Red Wings need to go 3-0. and That's not it. Think about our predictions from before the season. None of us predicted this to be a playoff team. It just needs to not be... 8-3. It needs to not be three goals against in 99 seconds against Boston. It, it just needs to be a little bit more stable. The glue needs to be there and the team can't fall apart at the uh, first sign. Well, not the first sign of adversary, adversity, but when things start to get out of hand. How do you coach mental toughness? It's been a question that every hockey team has wondered for decades. Nobody has found a concrete answer yet. Toronto will pay you a lot of money if you can figure it out. The Red Wings right now should pay a lot of money if they can figure it out because 8-3 isn't a systems loss. 8-3 isn't a talent loss. 8-3 is you folded. 
Yeah. You know, you can you can lose, you know, five three, five two, four two games, whatever, because the other team was simply better than you. Or because your coach lost the the matchup battle or lost the system battles. That's usually good for, you know, one or two goals a game that didn't go your way. Because hockey, when you break it down to it, players are generally good enough and smart enough to make up for mistakes and to plug holes where needed and to be competent when the system breaks down because the other team's good. 8-3 is your brain just checked out. You know, are the systems perfect? No, but watching the Red Wings this year, they don't seem particularly complicated. Their transition defense is either a 1-2-2 or a 1-3-1, which I mean... You know, my whale shit senior A team deploys those and we can do it competently. They're more aggressive in the D zone, which I think we've all been, you know, banging the table for for a few years now. So in theory, that should be an improvement. And at a lot of points this year, it has noticeably looked like an improvement, especially on the PK. Why does this team get in a hole and then implode like they do? I don't have an answer. Nobody is going to have an answer. It's a question that needs to be asked, understanding you're not going to get an answer, but that is the problem. That's why you get blown out. That's why the Red Wings get blown out so often. Your lack of talent will put you down in the game, and the Red Wings will have to suffer through that. Mentally checking out will turn that 4-2 into an 8-2 in a hurry. It's also been 10, 9, 10 games. Three, so, three blowouts, though. Three. Yeah, you're right. You're right, but your question was, how do you coach mental toughness? Certainly not quickly. No, God, no. You could go for a scorched earth strategy and, you know, have a one, two, three year shelf life on your coach if they come in and just basically uh, put the fear of God into the players, and and that's not 100% effective, right? But it's not exactly... It's been a frustrating start to the season, which is a hilarious thing to say considering the record. Three blowouts or, or however many frustrating losses where, yeah, they checked out or at, within one period, it's like bang, 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 five goals against or whatever it is. That's tough to swallow. It's preachy because it's all we've been saying for what, like four straight episodes now, but it's still early. It's not, you just have to give it time. And it, I, I also sympathize with the fact that that's excruciating as a fan to live through because you want to see, you want to see that some of the parts that were put together over the summer result in more for now. So it is what it is. The way the Red Wings respond is absolutely more important. Like you said, Evan, against Washington, against the Islanders and against the Rangers, like those are going to be they should be able to pull some points out of those games, but it's certainly not going to be easy. And, and the way they respond has to be demonstrating that mental toughness. Basically have what? Two days off until Washington. They have Washington at home. Just hit the reset, have some nice light skates, get the groove back, make some guys have some fun. And they're going to be able to get the matchups they want against Washington. So there's no excuse for them to come out um, hot on on Thursday. Oh, you're a better person than me, Evan. If I was the coach of this team, they were bag skating both days. Oh, you're bag skating after the Buffalo game. Yeah, 100%. God, you are bag. You are putting the fear of God into the players after the egg they absolutely laid. Yeah, it, like I said, the four it, when it was four three, it that was way closer than the game actually should have been. Um, 
some news on injuries. Sunquist remains day to day. There's not really a projection as to when he's going to return. Jake Wallman is apparently about a week away. Oh, so, thank God. So, <laughs> well, if you want a little bit of an injection into the defense, depending on how you feel about the third pair, especially, it can't be much worse. No, no, that's the thing. Shake things up in there a little bit. It might allow you to move the lines around. I'm not sure if Lalone is at the point where he's going to try some different pairings, but can't hurt at the very least. Anyways, that's a lot of doom and gloom. Why don't we get into a uh, a fun part of the episode? Uh, joining us today is Sean Shapiro. Um, really, really excited to have him on the podcast. Uh, you'll hear all about uh, what he's doing right now, but we've been reading his work for a long time. So excited to have him on the show for the first time. So enjoy that interview. On today's interview uh, on the Winged Wheel podcast, we are joined by a name that many of you likely already know, Sean Shapiro, who is the new, who is the new associate editor at EP Ringside, uh, and of course the renowned writer who's behind the publication Shap Shots uh, on Substack. So that's seanshapiro.substack.com. Sean, thank you so much for joining the show. No, oh, thanks for having me on. So we obviously had a chance to connect. It was really, really great to see you uh, out at uh, Winged Wheel Podcast Night at the LCA. Um, you know, we were talking before and it's, it's funny about, you know, meeting people online versus meeting them in person. Uh, it's, a uh, meeting in real life is, is a lot different, but it was great for you to see. And, and what was it like taking in the atmosphere of the, uh, the Red Wings crowd kind of from the game and over there at the after party? No, that was, that was, that was fun to see. That's, uh, I've obviously you and I had chatted before and I've, I've seen kind of the, you guys have on a pretty f- a strong following of, of listeners and everything like that. And it was, it was kind of fun to see kind of the community that you guys have built around, around this podcast. And, uh, I wasn't able to make it over to the, the, the pre-recording you guys did, but talking to some people at the, uh, at the bar after the game and just kind of having those conversations. That's, that's, that's one of the coolest things to me about kind of the sport that you can see sometimes is the way people come together and, people you don't know. I mean, it, it was funny. A uh, good friend of mine from, from high school. I obviously I've, I've, I've seen him multiple times before, but he was randomly, he was, he was one of the people who was at the bar as well. And, and you run into people and it's, it's kind of funny how life can connect that way. And so it's, it was, it was a cool atmosphere and it was also good job by you guys. It was kind of, it's fun to see the group you guys have brought and the following. And I think you told me you guys had a filled a full gondola with, with listeners and everything like that. It's that, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, well, much appreciated. And I have to tell you, we were really excited to to chat with you there because obviously now with your new Substack uh, Shap Shots, there's a, a new element of Red Wings coverage there. And so as someone who personally has followed your work for quite some time, um, it was natural for me to to immediately, you know, we were just trying to, you were just trying to have a drink and and say hi. And I immediately was like, well, you come on the podcast. So <laughs> why don't you talk to us a little yeah. bit about uh, what you're doing with Shap Shots and, and kind of all the work that you've uh, started up recently? Yeah. So about, about a month ago, roughly, I, I, my job changed, my job status changed. I lost my job at another publication. And uh, essentially, as I was kind of figuring things out, I wanted a space that I could write initially because I didn't want to ever be in a spot where... Um, I've always believed in, in this field, one of my greatest assets has been able to show people, if someone ever asked me, oh, what have you done lately? I could be able to show them. And that's kind of how it was born initially. It's like, okay, I'll keep writing and everything like that. And that's kind of how the Substack launched and kind of grew organically as what is this? I'm not really sure. Um, and it kind of fell into a couple niches. And one was, uh, 
and, and one was kind of, I have, I covered the Dallas Stars for 10 years, and so there's definitely some Dallas Stars readership that I've tapped into. But the other thing is, I'm here in Det- the Detroit area. My, uh, the, the, the Red Wings PR people were wonderful about respecting my career and still allowing me to be credentialed and, and come down. And I felt like, okay, I can use this and I can just tell some interesting stories around the Red Wings. I'm not going to claim to be a Red Wings beat writer because I don't want someone to follow me thinking that I'm going to be at practice every single day or is going to be on the road or I, I don't have the... T- I don't have the resources and a publication behind me doing something like that. But I do feel like there's a space where I can kind of add to Red Wings coverage and kind of the, oh, that's interesting, like both weird and like, oh, that's, that's, that's interesting, this type of space. And I have the, and I have the chance since I don't have to write about, I don't have to write about practice every day or whether, or whether they did this or that on the power play, I can, I can kind of dive into what's interesting to me. And so I kind of look at myself as like a hockey writer, Detroit adjacent, as opposed to a Red Wings beat writer. And it's, it's let me dive into some fun things, some things where I've had the flexibility and time to do it. Um, even, even with Red Wings opponents as well. Like, I mean, earlier this week, I talked to Marc-Andre Fleury about the fact he still wears a cowling on his skate. And for anyone who's not a goalie, essentially Marc-Andre Fleury is wearing the equivalent of antiques on his feet compared to every other NHL goalie. And Ole Mata, we talked about Pesapalo, which is the equivalent of uh, Finnish, Finnish baseball, but not really. So it, it's it's been fun, and I feel like that's kind of the space I can kind of jump into. It's like, it's an addition to your Red Wings coverage. It's, we have a free, there's a, there's a free tier to it, but... Would love anyone who's listening subscribe. It's seven bucks a month, and it's well worth your make it. I'll make it well worth your money. It's it's uh, we 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 have fun there. Let's kick off this conversation with one of your one of these really like kind of interesting niche uh, niche pieces that you wrote, which is uh, the Red Wings center situation, where they're all left handed and why that matters. So you know, a lot has been made about handedness of uh, of Red Wings over the years at different positions, but that was a super interesting piece. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about that one? Yeah, you're right. The, the handedness of players, the one that always comes to mind is, do we have enough right-handed defensemen? That's always our right-handed defensemen or unicorns or whatever. That's always the one that comes up. But the Red Wings center alignment and how it goes with basically centers one through four all being left-handed greatly impacts what happens and where face-offs happen for for, for this team. Um, you have, uh, when it comes to, when it comes, and, and we always hear that people like, oh, well, right. Someone's a righty. Someone's a righty. Someone's a righty. Someone's a lefty. They should be on the right side or the left side or whatever. But I think too often we kind of forget and, and don't go deep enough about why this impacts actual face-offs. It's not because, oh, I'm right-handed. I'm on the right side of the ice. I feel more comfortable. It has everything to do with the position of the linesman. So many times, if you think about if you try to picture a face-off, the linesman, when he's dropping the puck, is going to be on the side closest to the boards. And when he's, and with where the linesman is in, sorry, where the linesman is in position, it's going to impact what you're able to do as a center. And essentially the best position you can be as a center is when the draw is taken and the, uh, the blade of the stick is closest to the linesman, the butt end of the stick is the other way, because that gives 
a center the full array of options. They have the chance, they have full, they have the full ability to go a full power draw back. They have the ability to swing flu, swing through with either their left foot or their right foot. Um, you could probably, you could drop to a knee to try to win the draw. A full array of things that you can do when the linesman is in that ideal position. When the linesman's not in that position, it limits kind of the space you have to go through on the kind of big forward traditional power draw going through. It also kind of creates a little bit of a natural, like a little bit of a natural barrier. And I know it's something where it's, it's the linesman does try to get out of the way as quick as possible and everything like that. But in reality, there's only so much that they can do in, in such a short time. And we're talking about a split second for the faceoff. And so it's, it's, it's a space where when you're Detroit and all of your centers are one handedness, other teams are going to go out of their way, especially on icings. And that's when teams get to pick the reason the NHL put the icing rule where the offensive team gets to pick the spot. The other teams are going to go out of their way to pick a place where every single draw is going to be disadvantage, a disadvantage to a lefty. And you're going to see that all season for Detroit. It's, it's just a reality of how this lineup is set. And if you take a look in that story, you can see a pretty great image from the game against the Kings where you can see how much space the other center has going into a draw as opposed to the Detroit center because of just where the linesman is and the natural handedness. So in terms of the importance, I mean, I know you mentioned that everyone thinks a lot about defensive handedness and there's a lot made about that until a team has, you know, the perfect supply, so to speak, of left versus right-handed defensemen, even though it, they never really do in terms of having the best players available and then having them have the correct hand. All that to say, how important do you view it as in the grand scheme of things for the Red Wings to solve, so to speak, this uh, handedness issue for centers? Or is this kind of a nice to have for an NHL team? I think the Red Wings, when I, when I look at the Red Wings solving this problem is, I think there you don't solve it by changing one of your centers. I think I don't think you go and be like, oh, we got to go find a right-handed center. I think what you're missing is the Luke Lindenning, the role Luke Lindenning filled, where he could be the second guy in a line who would take faceoffs and was a righty. Like you see a lot of really good faceoff teams. Some of the team, if you look at some of the teams who have the best teams in the league in the faceoff, they essentially have a lefty and a righty on the ice at all times. Who can take two can take faceoffs, and I think that's something where you, when you look at kind of a Red Wings fix or development question, it doesn't become hey we need to we need to get rid of we we need to get rid of one of our left-handed centers for a right-handed center. It becomes more so of how can we continue to construct a lineup? How can we think about pieces in that realm where we can. Even, even as you're developing players too, just in the long term, how can we make sure that we have a second guy on that line where when the other team, when we ice the puck and the other team all of a sudden is going to pick, okay, well, we want to go to the right side. Okay, we have a center that can take both sides. I, I think that's kind of the way you fix this. It's not, and it's, it's nice to have, and it's something where, but you don't blow up a spot. You don't take a guy out of the NHL to bring up a guy just because he's right-handed. But I, I do think in the long run, as you look at these position battles and the way you want to be, I think the best teams in face-offs are always going to be the teams where, hey, you essentially have two guys who are face-off centers. Like, and, I, and just to bring a Dallas example from when from, I covered for that team for so long, for such a long time, they had Tyler Sagan and Jamie Benn on the same line together. 
one's lefty, one's righty. Whenever, basically, whoever was, while well, Sagan was technically the center, where if the based off where the draw was, that's who was the center for the faceoff, and that's something where I think as Detroit looks at long term plans and the Red Wings look at okay, the ideal lineup, that's that's what you want, and they kind of have it a little bit with Sunquist um, when he's healthy. Obviously, that's another issue right now, and you kind of have it a little bit with Sunquist, but you'd like to have that more than just one line, and. But you also don't make a trade to blow anything up for it, especially right now because um, it starts to become a luxury change for a team that's at a different arc in the trajectory than the Red Wings are right now. As much as we'd like to be, you'd like to be in that spot where you are picking paces for that. So you uh, you wrote about Moritz Sider to start the season, and he's been a big focus. Um, probably not the start to the year that he or Red Wings fans would have hoped that he's he'd have. Uh, seems to be struggling with getting his offensive game especially consistently going and a, a little bit uh, of overthinking seems to be happening on the ice. All that to say he's still been Detroit's most important and probably yeah. best defenseman. Um, although Holy Mata <laughs> has, has burst onto the scene. <laughs> yep. So you wrote about Moritz Sider and uh, and Ben Sherrod especially as his defensive mm-hmm. partner and the, the role he's to play. So how has that gone and, and what role is Ben Sherrod meant to play with respect to Moritz Sider's sophomore season? Yeah, and I, and I think we're talking about one of the key the key things we're talking about right here is this moment right now. I think the whole Ben Sherratt conversation is one where you have to look at Ben Sherratt for the 22-23 season and not the Ben Sherratt contract. I think those are two different discussions that, that, that people that are important here. Um, you... I've seen... You've seen this with young defensemen for it, and some guys need it longer than others. Um essentially with where Cider's game is at and where he's gone in the game and where, and where he's growing, there's little elements that you do pick up through veteran savvy. And I know coaches love to talk about it till they get blue in the face and it becomes over cliched sometimes, but there are, there are places where there are things you learn about the league and the league learns about you. And, this is where Sherratt plays that role for Cider, where he plays that role both on the ice, where he allows Cider to create a little bit more offensively. Obviously, we haven't seen all of it yet, but that he, I think for Sherratt's piece, he's done a good job. And he also, off the ice, Sherratt starts to know and starts to read how teams are playing against their pair and how teams have learned Cider. I know I've talked to Sherratt actually since that piece came out about how he and Sider have had conversations in games where they've been able to adjust because teams are scouting and know what to expect from from Sider a little bit more, and they can adjust. Um, It's a long-term process when it comes to a defensive development, and that's that's where Sherratt plays a key role in just having someone who... I I don't want to overly say, like, coach on the ice, but having someone who can basically... Also, be a little bit of the fall guy too. At the same time, it's it's it, 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 as as funny as that sounds. I mean, I remember one of the uh, things hearing from a GM at one point where he he had a not great team. He says like, "Well, why do you have these older guys to? Why do you have these older guys around when they're not going to be part of the future?" And, and kind of the question and the answer was, "Well, when we when you're losing eight to three, five to one, six to one, do you want your young twenty two year old?" taking the beating from the questions 
Or do you want the guy who knows how to, who already has the shield and the mask and the veneer that he can just stand there and take it? He protects that from he protects your younger guys from feeling the whole weight of the world on that. And that's one of the kind of mental and emotional things I think Sherrod also brings to Cider's game as well. The prevailing concern right now for Red Wings fans, even though we're only, you know, ten games or so into the season, the main focus for folks is is the slow start for Lucas Raymond, you know, his two goal, recent two goal game notwithstanding, uh, is the slow start for Moritz Sider. Are these, you know, prototypical sophomore slumps or is this part of the grander or a more grand uh, adjustment period as Derek Lalone comes in and implements a new system and a whole team settles into new chemistry and there's injuries abound and, you know, you're playing next to brand new guys. You've, you've watched the Red Wings pretty closely what do you make of this as someone who views this from a national perspective as well? Is this kind of a um, a cause for concern for Red Wings fans, or is this kind of business as usual and you expect it to settle? I would expect it to settle. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be overly concerned about Cider and Raymond. Um, I I look at Raymond's two goal game on Saturday was obviously a big step in the in in the right direction. Not only are these guys only in their second NHL season, they're also it, there's a sophomore slump. Sophomore slumps can happen for a couple of reasons. Part of it can be the league has learned you, and you have to learn to adjust. Part of that is that, and then the other thing is these guys learned about the NHL from Jeff Blaschel. They're gonna and that's and they're going through their first ever coaching change. You've learned what is the norm for them in the NHL is Jeff Blaschel, only Jeff Blaschel. We talk about a David Perron, a Ben Sherratt. These guys, these older players who have played for multiple head coaches before, are pretty much understand that their game is not dependent on who the coach is. And sometimes I know younger players, and I don't know for sure on Raymond Insider. I haven't actually asked them this. It's probably a great question, actually. Um, but some younger players... Until you've gone through a coaching change, you don't realize that who the coach is doesn't really change how you play that much. Obviously, you still play within the system. And I, and so I think this between the new coaching change, the league getting to know them, um, higher expectations, both internally from, from themselves and, 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 and externally from both the organization and the outside world. And, and now it's, it's a slow start to the season. Like if if all of a sudden we're talking the twenty game mark, I think then it starts to become a concern. But just at this point in the season, it's still it's still early, and you're seeing the flashes, and 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 you're not seeing. And the other thing about it too is you aren't seeing them dragging the wings down, right? Like that that's that's the other thing. When 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 the wings have been bad, obviously the Buffalo game <laughs> this week, everyone's been bad. It's not it's it's not like it's not like it's a space where you have this team that is running and gunning for a Stanley Cup right now and you're like, well these guys are just dragging everyone down. It's not like that. They're kind of going with the ebbs and flow of the team and as they get as they break out of their own slumps and things like that, you're going to see the team reflect them and vice versa. So I, I I wouldn't panic about it. I think going in, I've seen some stories from other places about talking like about how, oh, it's, it's a worry and, and, and talk, 
talk more about it when it's 20 games. But like right now, it's like, okay, it's a slow start. That That's all it is to me right now. Um, I think people forget the age, too, of these guys. Like they're... They still both. I think both. Neither can legally. Neither of us. Neither of them would have been allowed to go to the bar with us Saturday night. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, we didn't see them there. That's probably the only reason why. Otherwise, they would yes. have definitely made it, it out. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So you know that's a lot on the Red Wings, and, and we've chatted on the show quite a bit about uh, you know taking deep breaths and understanding that even though you know we record twice weekly, it doesn't mean everything's going to be fixed within the first ten games, twenty games, whatever. Uh, so let's take a, a look at a more national view. And I know a big story that's happening right now is the sale of the Ottawa Senators. And uh, you actually just put out a piece on uh, how the valuation of the centers, Senators might be uh, affected by another ongoing sale. And, you know, it doesn't happen too often where NHL teams change hands. So um, fill us in on that a little bit. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting time in the world right now where it just kind of worked out that we're seeing three NHL franchises change hands in the course of 18 months. And to give you an idea of how rarely NHL franchises change hands, none of us were alive. I mean, neither of you are. The Illiches have owned the Red Wings for forever and will likely own the Red Wings for forever. They basically have gone from NHL franchises have essentially gone from ownership, the ownership groups have become basically monarchies of ownership where it's going to be passed on from one family member to the next, to the next, to the next. And so to actually see them change hands is very uncommon, especially now with what the valuations are, because you have people who are maybe bought these teams 20, 30 years ago and are essentially printing money now based off of the value or they're, they cost so much, and we're talking about the uber uber rich who don't aren't going to give up an asset. So it's so to see um, we saw the Pittsburgh Penguins get sold to Fenway Sports Group about uh, it was officially this about a year ago is when it came out. I think the sale went through last right before the end of year last year, um, and the Penguins sold for nine hundred million dollars was what the Penguins sold for, and that's a deal where. It's $900 million today, but I've been told and talked to people where essentially that deal is, that deal and sale price will probably be closer to 1.1 billion once, once the sale fine, once the finality of the sale goes through. Because how people, people much smarter with financial and money than I figure out how to make sure both sides pay as little in taxes as possible. That, that's how these deals work. That's how when the people may have seen. So when Tom Dundon bought the Carolina Hurricanes, um, he only bought officially bought 75% of the team from and Carmanos was still a 25% owner up until 29, sorry, 2020, up and through 2020, uh, 2021. And essentially, the only reason that happened was Dundon could basically pay less taxes on buying out the final 25% from a minority owner when he was the majority owner after three, four years, whatever it is. And so there's these sliding mechanisms that within these deals where what is paid today is not the full deal because rich people are very smart at figuring out how to minimize their tax level. And so that's what's going to happen with the Penguins. It's going to probably be closer to $1.1 billion. Mario Lemieux and Ron Burkle are still minority owners. Eventually, they will be probably fully uh, brought out. Burkle, for sure. Mario, maybe not. But um, And so 
that's what's going and we're seeing the same thing in Nashville right now where the Nashville Predators have kind of an odd ownership situation where they have about 16 different owners listed on their site you, you, they don't really have they don't really have a vocal majority owner and uh, so Haslam the former governor of Tennessee um, whose brother owned the owns or own the Cleveland Browns connection um is in the process of now basically becoming the majority owner. And it's something where he's going to buy the, by 2025, he should be the majority owner. And the price right now, uh, Sportico was the first, first one to report this, 775 million. But because of these kind of moving pieces we talked about and other financial terms, but essentially Haslam at the end of the day will probably pay about $900 million um, to own the majority of the Nashville Predators. This brings us to the Ottawa Senators, where we talked earlier about these NHL teams buying become like a monarchy and how they get passed down. Well, that's not the case in Ottawa. Eugene Melnick obviously passed away. Um, neither of his daughters have shown interest in really keeping the NHL team. They're both younger, both, I believe they're both under 25. Both, and so they're basically have kind of entrusted and hired a bank that's specializes in these type of sports advisory things and helping them sell the team. And the Senators are at a spot where I believe uh, they're valued right now at like $655 million by Sportico. And those franchise values that you see by Sportico or a Forbes and everything like that, they're, they're always really interesting. Like they come out and you're like, oh, this team's worth this much and everything like that. But it's not a re, it's not an actual fair reflection of what you would actually get if they were bought or sold because it's not, it's, I like to compare it to this. It's like a sale price in a house seller's market, right? That's kind of the best way to look at those lists where in theory, oh, if there was in theory, if anyone could just go up and buy them and put down $665 million, that would be the Ottawa Senators value. But the valuation of franchises is is driven up by the scarcity of there's only 32 of these properties. There's there's only 32 of these. Um, there's only 32 in the world. And you look at when you when you look at the fact that the Red Wings and the Bruins and 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 they're they're not going to change hands. They probably will never change hands, honestly, from the families that have them now. So getting an NHL franchise is is an extremely lucky turn of events to happen in the first place. So that that raises the value and. The Senators are also in a spot where it's a Canadian market and 2025-26 season is the last season of the current Canadian TV deal. And we all saw how franchise values ballooned after the ESPN and Turner deal in the United States. And something similar is expected to happen with particularly with the Canadian teams who get a much bigger cut of that. So you're looking at an Ottawa Senators franchise who even with their building issues, even, even with their building issues, are a... There's there's a chance for someone to make a lot of money if they have that money up front, and so that's why we'll see Ottawa probably probably between 800, 850 million sale price, um, and what happens with the Senators is really just a reflection of how these franchises are just going to continue. The NHL franchise values are going up, and I'm sure as we keep talking about this, the other kind of like. I didn't write about this part, but this is the other thing that I'm looking at and just always curious at is you're the NHL Players Association. You start to wonder like, okay, we owe these owners this massive debt. That's why we have this this escrow and everything like that. And their franchise values keep going up. 
when are we gonna get some of that? So that's a, that's another just a, that's another deep wormhole dive that, that just kind of pops into mind of this because it's it's great for the game that these franchise values go up, but at the same time, if you're the PA, you also start to wonder and realize, okay, um, how do we make sure where our values are going up uh, reflectively of that? So that's that's not in that story, but that's just something that's been fresh on my mind when I whenever I write about this stuff with franchise values. I'm sure the next collective bargaining agreement is going to be a uh, very simple one, which will give us uh, plenty to talk about. So, uh, Sean, really, really appreciate you coming on the show today, folks. This has been Sean Shapiro, associate editor at EP Ringside, uh, writes on uh, Substack at seanshapiro.substack.com, which is Shapshots. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for joining the show and can't wait to do it again. Oh, it's been fun. I'm looking forward to doing it again. All right. And that was our interview with Sean Shapiro. Thank you, Sean, for joining the show. Um, A lot of interesting conversation in there, especially about the valuation of uh, NHL teams towards the end. I thought that was really cool. And uh, I wasn't kidding when I said I expect the next CBA to be bloody because eventually players and their agents are going to want to come for the piece of that pie uh, when the sale of teams uh, is realized and they're getting north of a billion bucks. Uh, But for now, let's jump back to the Red Wings. You know, I made mention of the fact that Ned didn't have the strongest game, to say the least. But at the same time, he wasn't getting really great support. And that's not just in terms of, you know, the defense failed him that game. It's also in terms of like road starts and strength of schedule and everything else like that. It still feels like this is Huso's net right now. Not permanently, but in terms of uh, we're going to ride the hot hand scenario, it still feels like Huso is on trajectory to be emerging. He is the quote-unquote hot hand and he's probably going to be treated as the de facto starter until something changes he got opening night and he was the first goalie to get back-to-backs and now with Nedeljkovic's most recent performance I think we can comfortably say Huso's the number one guy not that it means Huso's going to play 75% of the games now because I don't think that's going to happen I think it's still going to be you know pretty close to a platoon, but we will definitely see who's so getting the tougher matchups, the marquee games. If there is some rest in between getting some back to backs and, you know, plainly he's making more money. He signed longer and his numbers are a lot better this year. You know, you can nitpick Nadelkovic got both of the devil's games, you know, to mix results, et cetera, et cetera. Detroit lazy egg in front of him in front of Buffalo. Yeah. Ned's been dealt a pretty crap hand so far this year, but as we talked about with the Red Wings schedule as a whole, it applies to goalies. You can only play what you have. Mm-hmm. And between the two of them, it's been pretty clear cut who's been better outside of the one game that Ned stole from the Devils. It's all about to, you know, seizing opportunity. We talk about this a lot with Zadina. There's a lot of really great arguments in my mind to be made about some raw deals that Zadina got, but he's hardly the first player to ever get a raw deal. And that's just life, right? Like things aren't going to shake out perfectly for you. It's not going to be completely fair. And everything that Derek Lalone has said about the goaltending is who seizes the net? Who's going to just grab that starting job? That's how every everyday NHLer has achieved their spot on the roster in the lineup, getting those minutes every night. They've seized it. I think before the Buffalo game, there's a, a much stronger argument to be made about, uh, oh, you know, Ned had way tougher matchups and, uh, in terms of expected goals and everything like that. 
the Red Wings were, it was a combined Red Wings were extremely sloppy in front of him. And he was also, um, he let in some, uh, some bad goals that night. So right now it, the, the statistics clearly point towards Billy So, and the thing about this is when you have two talented goaltenders, it's going to ebb and flow. I guarantee you at some point this year, they're both going to stink. And I guarantee you at some point this year, they're both going to be good enough where there's actually probably a pretty heated debate in terms of which one of them should be in net. But yeah, as of right now, it, it's it's pretty clearly Huso who's who's standing out. But it's so early in the season that uh, I I don't know if I'd call it you know bonafide starter more than just a one A at the moment. You know, we know that this is going to be a platoon. We know there's going to be ups and downs for both goalies all year. And in the end, over an eighty-two game season, we'll have a pretty good picture of you know what that ebb and flow ultimately yielded because as a goal you still need consistency you can have bad games every goalie's going to have bad games but you need that consistency and you know early in the season Huso's save percentage is 55 points higher than nets that is not insignificant you know i understand the bad hand nets dealt but 55 is insane nets goals against average is double that of Huso's and Huso's had a couple tough games and I think Huso had the Boston game. Did he not? Yep. So it's not like he's had a free ride. Um, and I think he had LA as well. He had the home opener. He's, he's had some difficult games as well. So do I expect the, that gap to be 55 points? Do I expect Ned to be an 871 and Huso to be a 926 at the end of the year? No, I expect those numbers to kind of gradually get closer together, but, as you said, with especially with the ebb and flow, Lalonde said he wants to ride the hot hand. He wants a guy to grab that crease. Okay, we know what the hot hand is right now. Mm-hmm. We know whose crease it is right now. And as far as I'm concerned, it should be his until he deems otherwise. If Huso goes out against Washington tomorrow and just lays an absolute egg, yeah, you give Ned the Islanders on Saturday. If Huso goes out against Washington... And pitches a great game, pitches another like, you know, 925 to 950 performance. Okay, he gets the Islanders on Saturday. Like, they're going to split the weekend. Whatever you deem to be the more important game, maybe it should be the inverse. Rangers are a better team than the Islanders. If Huso has a great game tomorrow, rest him. Give him the Rangers on Sunday and give Ned the quote-unquote weaker team, although both teams are pretty good this year. Yeah. You, it's Huso's net. And Make your decisions around that. Yeah, I think this the next three games for the goaltending anyway will be will be really interesting for all the things you just said, Brad. You know, Huso's obviously starting tomorrow, so we don't really need to have any conversation around that. But you know, do you put Ned in a better spot with a few more days rest? Give him the home game start on Saturday. You get the matchups. You know, put him in a position really where he's aligned for better success. Because going into the Rangers away after playing at home the night before, it's not a great place to put Ned after he just laid an egg. So it'll be very interesting. I am totally open to any way that they go with the starts this weekend. Um, I just think it'll be it'll be interesting what they decide to do. Like if it was up to me, it's Huso tomorrow night, Ned on Saturday, pulling Jimmy Howard out of retirement to have him dominate New York again. Yeah, <laughs> that's a secret weapon. <laughs> Sorry, Bally, you're gonna Bally. We'll give you Evan to borrow for uh, 
for uh, the analyst role. And do not send them the cut list of this podcast <laughs> <laughs> because it is a bloodbath. Oh right boy! Now. <laughs> yeah, the cutting floor is is going to be deep. If this episode doesn't get out the three a.m., I apologize <laughs> <laughs> to them or me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well. Uh, you know what? There's clarity right now. We'll see three more games and a lot can change. I wouldn't be surprised if Lalone gives, I don't want to say one more chance as if it's like, you know, the final opportunity, but if he gives uh, Ned another chance after the Buffalo game to say, all right, let's shake that. Like the guys are going to shake that out of their heads. You forget that game real quick. Here's another opportunity for you. But pretty much every configuration, like you said, Evan, I'm, I could see the justification for all of it. Yep. More positive news. Some Red Wings prospects. Uh, Carter Mazur, who, you know, I mean, the story about him since he's been drafted is he's just been getting better and better. Uh, NCHC, uh, October Player of the Month, four game-winning goals, which leads the NCAA, 10 goals, which is tied for the lead in the NCAA, 12 points. Um, He had a Hattie the other night. This is in October. Like, what a month for him, and, and what a continued successful story for Carter Mazur. He's crushing it over in Denver. Yeah, I mean, he's very clearly established who he is as a player. I mean, he's going for the Cy Young this year by his stat line. Um, (laughs) And the talent for his second year in the NCAA seems to be immense. Um, You know, it's a really good sign because the Red Wings need goal scorers desperately. Um, Who knows what's going to happen with Bertuzzi uh, the rest of this season, but Mazur seems like the exact type of guy you want to come in and replace Bertuzzi if he doesn't re-sign or if he gets traded. Because they play extremely similar games, fill a similar type of role. I don't think Mazur's ever going to be a line driver in the NHL. Neither was Tyler Bertuzzi. But you put Mazur with a guy like Dylan Larkin, and I see a reality where he has the exact type of output that Tyler Bertuzzi did. Not right away. Obviously, you know, these type of players very rarely walk into the NHL and put up 25 goals year one it's it's usually a a steeper learning curve but man for a third round pick the fact that we can already see a trajectory that could somewhat mirror a top end player like tyler bertuzzi although they came from different junior systems but still that's how often have we said through this rebuild especially not getting lottery luck you need to hit outside of the first round you need to hit outside of the second round you just can't build a team without a couple of those because of the salary cap system, because of how hard it is to make trades, et cetera, et cetera. If Mazur can turn and Soderblom turn into top six caliber forwards, that is such a boon for a team trying to get on the upswing. That kind of player can be just so, so effective. And to pull them in from a later round, there's a long way to go on the path to the NHL. But like you said, yeah, it would be a huge boon for the team. Talking about a player a little bit higher up, Marco Casper is having himself a hell of a start to the year over in the SHL and uh, in, the, in the CHL in his time with Rogla. Uh, you know, what's funny is um, I was taking a look at Marco Casper's uh, uh, numbers and Jordan Harris on Twitter actually put together a really great thread summarizing. It was just earlier today, like just shortly before we started recording the podcast. Uh, so go check that out. But yeah, Marco Casper has himself a nice start. Three goals, seven assists for 10 points. I believe he leads Rogla. Uh, Jordan said at uh, in minutes five on five for the team on forwards he's getting an increased role over there and he's being trusted to do more and more and the kind of game he plays like just watching Marco Casper ice hockey gifts always has 
uh, the highlights of him. Watching this team, like the Red Wings team, not drive the net and not get into the dirty areas and, and not kind of create that disruption down the middle and then watching how Casper develops and uh, uh, plays his game, it's just such a breath of fresh air and it's something that I can't wait to have on the Red Wings. There's a lot of times the Red Wings make it look like Dylan Larkin's playing on an island. And we've talked about the comparisons to Larkin and Casper. Well, if we're going to stick Dylan Larkin on an island, we might as well have one of them on each line, on each of the top two lines. Happily take that. Yeah. Uh, again, long way to go, and I don't think Casper will ever... Not will, I don't think, but I think Casper's got a long way to go to produce like Dylan Larkin at the NHL level, but we see the path. We see the talent. And, you know, the sad reality is not getting lottery luck. The Red Wings can't afford for Casper to not be the number two center. They can't afford to miss on him, just like Edvinson. He needs to figure it out because they they aren't picking first, second, third overall. So they need these guys like Sider and Raymond did to become top three, top two caliber players. And uh, yeah, I, the SHL is an extremely difficult league and, and Marco Casper is doing this at like 19 years old. That's phenomenal because he's playing second line, third line center, ton of minutes on one of the better teams over there. So he's still 18. Still, he hasn't turned 19 yet. No. So there you go, even better. So he's only 18 doing all this. And yeah, it's not like he's doing it in the Olsen's gone or junior or no offense to Mazer, but the NCAA. Like he's doing this in one of the best leagues in the world. There's uh, his. Like you said, his projection, his development, how much of an impact he can make. Like, I don't want to make any kind of guarantee that Marco Casper is going to be on this team next season. But if Marco Casper can challenge for a spot on this team next season, oof, that'd be a massive boost to Detroit. I'd say he should. I think with the way he's playing this year and looking at the Red Wings as they are, Casper is going to have a very strong case for this roster next year. I think... He'll come, he'll come in with the same amount of opportunity as Edmondson, in my mind. I agree. But in terms of, I know they're different positions, but in terms of prospect profile, Casper and Edmondson could not be any more different. One of the things with Casper coming out of the draft was he was one of the more polished, well-rounded players in that entire draft. Edmondson was raw, all tools, but oh my God, he's a project. That's not Casper. Casper's like, okay, we've got the foundation of a good hockey player here. We just need to boost his talent a little bit. So yeah, I, I think, yeah, in terms of opportunity, you're right. He's going to have the same opportunity that Edvinson had this year. I just think Casper's more likely to capitalize on it. If he, if Casper's on the Red Wings next season, though, like there's a really good opportunity or a really good chance, and that's in a winger role. Like they don't stick him right down the middle right away. You I never know. I don't know. I, I really like his game at center. You give him the Thomas Vanek treatment for sure. You play him on the third line. He is not getting the Sidney Crosby's and Connor McDavid's of the world. He is not playing PK. He, you maybe dabble him on the power play, but you, you're giving him as sheltered of a role at home. He is playing the other team's bottom pairing religiously. Like you can bring a rookie in at center. It is happened. You know, if a player is polished and well-rounded like he is, you can certainly do it because you're not worried about the foundations. You're not worried about the mistakes. You're just, all right, we need to get you up to speed, kid. So again, we're not getting you up to speed against the top 10 players in the world. So you're going to get, you know, all the Gustav Lindstrom's and Robert Haggs we can throw at you. But 
yeah, and you know, and and welcome to the NHL. Get better. All right. Uh, some NHL news. What year is it? Eric Carlson is leading defenseman in points. You love to see it. Nine goals, six assists for 15 points to lead all defensemen. Connor McDavid, 11 goals in 10 games. <laughs> I know there are a lot of jokes. Like Leon Dreisettle said preseason, he's like, if Connor McDavid wants to score 70 goals or whatever it is, he can. It's just about him wanting to do it. And you've seen that before. I think at uh, one point in Crosby's career, he and others were talking about, oh, I want to shoot more. Like, I want to challenge myself to score more. And all of a sudden, he was, you know, leading the Rocket Richard, scoring at will. Players who transcend, players who are like, you know, the best on the planet, it doesn't surprise you when they do that, but it still surprises you watching Connor McDavid play. I have no doubt in my mind that he can do what Matthews did last season. And that is an absolutely insane thing to say out loud confidently. But he's the only person in the world where I'm like, yeah, that guy can absolutely do anything that any other hockey player can be doing. And then there's what him and Drysaddle have been doing to Nashville. Did you see those stats? Drysaddle's averaging was two goals a game against Nashville. Yeah, like th- 27 points in nine games or something absurd like that. Like it's the opposite of what you're supposed to do against Nashville. Yeah, someone just looked at that and went to Leon. Who on Nashville hurt you? <laughs> he like. It's personal. That's a great city to party in. Usually players have a little bit of a hangover when they go there. Jeez, apparently Leon's walking into the arena still buzzed from the night before. <laughs> it's just just absolutely lighting them up. Like oh. two goals a game is an embarrassing number. Like we, we've all heard of like, you know, the, the road games where guys don't want to play. They get the flu. Mm-hmm. Nashville's going to have home games. They're like, yeah, not nah, coach. Not feeling it tonight. Edmonton's coming to town. Yeah. Uh you guys see the Silverberg goal against? Oh, what a shot. How are you supposed to tank against that? <laughs> They're literally firing bombs into their own net. Like, they are getting one of Fantilli, Mitchkov, or Bedard. That was a great release, too. That was awesome. Was, someone brought up the point, was that the hardest shot own goal in NHL history? It has to be. It's up there. That's, that's so bad that there would have been no time for me. Like if I was his teammate, there would have been no period of time where I would have been angry and had to get over it. I would immediately have been joking about that in the dressing room. Like an yeah. oh, unreal goal, like give him the game puck, like goal of the month, put it on every season highlight reel. Like that was hysterical. They'll probably make t-shirts of it. Oh, and I'll wear it. so good. Yeah. Great that's shot. T- that's tough. Goalie didn't stand a chance. <laughs> if they actually win the lottery and get Connor Bedard, that is... Whatever network is airing the draft lottery, you must, you absolutely must put that goal against in your highlight package. It absolutely has to be in your reel. The old, how did they get here? (laughs) Summary of their season. (laughs) So uh, it's funny. Someone actually mentioned to me, if any of you listeners want to take uh, Adam Lascaris up on this, but a a friend of ours, Adam Lascaris, um, he, he covers Toronto sports. Really, really uh, great guy, a friend of ours. And he's um, he said he wants to donate to Wings Money on the board, you know, X amount of dollars for every time we talk about Toronto. And I wanted it to happen as naturally as possible. I'm like, look, I can't keep track of that. But if any of our listeners want to, by all means, please do. Because Adam will actually use that to, to make a donation. And I, I, I didn't want to force it, but it seems like every episode Toronto gives us something to talk about. Because what the hell is going on there? It's so hard to keep up. Remember how we were talking about how Anaheim's so bad they're firing the puck into their own net? Uh, Toronto, in the game against Anaheim they had a few days ago, 
They blew a 3-1 third period lead, had an absolutely ridiculously awful goaltender interference call go in their favor, and still lost the game while Mitch Marner got benched for part of the third period. Oh, yes. Yep. It's all coming back. This we, we, we were talking about the wings and mental fragility. It's okay for the wings to be a little mentally fragile because there are no expectations for this team right now. Hey, guys, get a little better this season. We know your window isn't for another couple of years. Uh, Toronto should have won multiple Stanley Cups by now with the roster they've assembled. Instead, they haven't got out of the first round. They're losing uh, games to teams shooting the puck into their own net, and their stars are getting benched, and the entire Toronto media is ripping them for being mentally weak. It's like they they can still turn it around based on the players that they have. And then by the time playoffs come, it, you know, everyone can be riding their high, and there's no controversy about, you know, Mitch Martin getting benched or is Sheldon Keefe on a hot seat or whatever it is. And then inevitably it'll implode again. But for it to be happening all at the start of the season, the season where everyone is saying, hey, look, yo, it has to come together this year. Like no more of this. It absolutely has, has to come together. It's a bad sign. Like people are already counting how much Sheldon Keefe and, and Mike Babcock are making in salary from the Maple Leafs this year. It's it's $7 million between the two of them, roughly, I think. Um and once that's out there, you know, once the big, big, big names are talking about what it would be like if they did fire Keith, like this thing, it's a powder keg. That whole team, the whole city, the, the everything surrounding it, it's a powder keg. Like I always say, one way or another, Toronto will burn. Leafs, what did you say? It's, Leafs are going to leaf? The Leafs going to leaf. Ken called, said on the broadcast, it's very a leafian start to the year, and it is. What's a little drama in Leafland? The slow, like, Animorphs change from me into the kind of person who's been saying trade Marner the entire time, and now I'm just like, yeah, maybe that's not such a bad idea. <laughs> Lars sent me a video of someone who tweeted Kyle Dubas's grandmother. Oh, that was deranged. Reply. No, that, was, that, guy, that guy needs help. That yeah. was deranged. <laughs> Don't do that. It's like a very dimly lit room, a very non-appealing camera angle that he oh, used. My God. And he basically went on this like serial-pathic rant about how signing John Tavares and Mitch Marner has was incompetent by her grandson, Kyle Dubas. Yeah. Imagine targeting someone's grandmother on social media. Like, just think about that statement. You targeted their grandmother on social media. Remember last year when they, uh, I don't know if it was a calendar or someone just did an interview with Jack Campbell and he was walking his cat and everyone was like, you can't win with a man like that. <laughs> you can't win with a guy who takes his cat on a leash on a, for a walk. I'll take the that counter argument. Someone confident enough yeah. to take their cat for a walk. Nothing phases him. You wouldn't that, walk Personally, Fred? I agree. That goalie is unflappable. Yeah. Goalies are a little nutty. You should be concerned if your goalie doesn't take their cats for walks. All right. Well, uh, I recognize the irony, whatever, about uh, a Red Wings podcast making fun of how bad the Leafs are when the Red Wings just lost to the Buffalo Sabres. We're ahead of them in the standings. We're allowed to do this right now. That's true. For as long as that's the case, we can do so, you know, unfettered and, and unconcerned about the optics of that. But why don't we jump into overtime on this episode of the Winged Wheel podcast, which is proudly brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast. If you want to join the dub dub club, you get access to our uh, Patreon exclusive overtime episodes that we record right after this, uh, which are a lot of fun. You get access to the WWP discord. 
Uh, we have ticket giveaways constantly. We have uh, two tickets to every single Red Wings home game this season, and the majority of them are going to uh, patrons. For example, the Washington, no, the uh, Islanders game is currently be- being given away to patrons. You're automatically entered into any public giveaways. There's a whole lot of benefits. Uh, so if you're uh, looking to support the show, uh, that is a great, great way to do it, and we really, really appreciate all of it. All right, why don't we start with a question here from Patrick J, who says, I think Hronik has been our best D-man this year personally. Do you think that's more about him improving or having a steady partner on his left side for the first time in his career? I'd like to see Wallman with Cider when he returns with Sherratt dropped to the third pair. Do you think that's what happens? I disagree that Hronik's been our best D. Um, I, I do agree with you um, that the consistency certainly has helped him. Um, and do I think Hronik's been better than last year? Yes, I agree. A lot of the same mistakes as he's made last year, but I'll, I'll concede it's been less of them. I don't even think Hronik's been the best defenseman on his pairing. I think a big reason for the the small strides Hronik has made has been Oli Mata. Oli Mata and despite his slow start, Mo Sider have been the Red Wings' two best defensemen this year. Sider obviously has not lived up to his standards that he set for himself, but he's still pretty comfortably ahead of the rest of this D crew. Um, but Mata has been a very pleasant surprise at, you know, in all three zones. Uh, Craig Parrish says at the beginning of the season, it was mentioned we are playing with more or quicker pace. It feels to me we are using a stretch pass more, uh, which I attribute to that. Do you all think maybe this has helped to contribute to Sider not seeming to be as strong offensively as his rookie season? No, I think that would actually help Mo because, you know, he's one of the smarter players on the ice. The one thing I've noticed is that I think is working against Mo this year is they're trying to force feed him and the other teams are reading it and Mo has had no time to breathe this year. Obviously, when you're as good as him and you win the rookie of the year, teams are going to catch on, teams are going to game plan against you. So we knew that was coming for Mo, but Sherratt's not a capable puck mover. So it's it's become obvious that the Red Wings are trying to run everything through Cider. Now that's going to happen with any player like Mo on any team. You're always going to try to run the puck through your best player. But the fact that it's so obvious has made it easier for the other teams to game plan against. And that is obviously hindering Mo. And Mo himself is trying to do too much. That's what it comes to. And he needs to simplify his game because there are ways that this can happen. And he can still be more effective than he has been. He needs to simplify his game, and the Red Wings need to come up with a new game plan uh, for his pairing because what's happening right now isn't working. Uh, Evans' actual dentist says, what's the word on uh, Pesic? I'm waiting on bated breath for that shutdown third pair of Wallman Pesic. I'm done with the Hagelinstrom experiment, but it's the best option right now. He's not expected back until January 2023 earliest, I believe. So Yeah, it's going to be a while. Wallman is going to have to cause a disruption or if Edmondson continues to do well in the Grand Rapids, they might call him up. I'm not exactly, you know, chomping at the bit to have Edmondson called up quite yet. I don't really think. I don't care what's going on with the Red Wings blue line. The only time I'm calling Edmondson up is when Edmondson looks entirely too ready and too good for Grand Rapids. The The Red Wings roster should not affect Edmondson at all. If this team is out of sorts as they have been, like why did they lose against Buffalo? They were sloppy and they were out of sorts and they did not play as a any sum of their parts. 
I just don't see how injecting Edmondson into that system is a recipe for success. You're basically banking on him being able to overcome a pretty crummy support system. Unless you think he's all of a sudden a game-breaking defenseman in his rookie season, which again, most Sider was an aberration, you don't really rush to call him up. That said, if they want to give him a look, by all means. But you, right now, yeah, it's Wallman who's going to come up and, and probably challenge for roster spots and not too much else. Uh, okay, Wildcat Dallas Drake says, I've never played organized hockey and I've always been curious about how someone decides their position. Are they put in a position when they're 10 and remain in that position forever? Do you move around uh, when in your teens until you find your best position? Do goalies really grow up wanting to be a goalie? In football, a running back in high school may be a receiver in college. Sometimes they even change going from college to pros. In hockey, it seems like once a defenseman, always a defenseman. Unless you're Mitch Marner, then you play forward and defense, apparently. Generally speaking, you know your position from a fairly early age. I'll say like 8, 9, 10 years old. The reason you end up at that position generally is because it's the one you enjoy the most. Um, kids usually pick their position. Every once in a while as a kid gets older, you'll see the exceptions where a coach goes, hey, if you want to go somewhere, your skill set is suited perfectly for you know X position, so we're going to switch you there if the kid's willing. And I wouldn't say that's common at all. That's very rare. Um, so when you're young, you pick your position. As you're growing up, you just you know, hone your craft, get better at it, understand it more, improve within that position. You know, it, it, and I'm saying forward D goalie, like it's pretty easy for a, a forward to juggle center wing when they're coming up. But once you get to the like, you know, U15, U16, AAA levels, junior and all that, you have to be set in a position by then. Once you're anywhere near scouts looking at you for any level, like unless you're some kind of phenom or like utility guy or jack of all trades, yeah, you want to be set in your position. It's a mixed bag. I remember I was set at defense just because the coach that day when I was like three years old decided, yeah, we need X number of kids on defense. That's what you're going out to play in your little tyke hockey. And I just stuck with it. I don't know. Maybe I could have played forward. I certainly don't have any offensive finish, but I never also developed to, to train any of it. You can... It's not black and white. There are so many players in the NHL who are talented enough to do either, but it's just not the most optimal way to play, and it's not how they've played their entire life. But typically, if you're the best of the best, you can do a lot of things around the ice. Look at Sergei Fedorov when he played D. Yeah, when you get to the top levels, there's there's no time to learn things like basic skills and knowledge. Like you have to be. It's a big shift intimately familiar with the position and the nuances and there are so many nuances on the ice like if you asked me to play defense in my league right now i'd be the worst player in the league comfortably i'd have no idea what i'm doing i haven't played a game of decent defense since i was like seven years old brad the first uh first defenseman at cherry pick <laughs> yeah oh <laughs> god new yeah. hybrid coaching style i don't remember but i assume the first time a coach ever put me at defense in like timbits house league or whatever it was i they probably got sick of it because i just kept going up the whole time um, I assume, but yeah, it's, but again, me being a center, I don't need to think about being a center when I'm on the ice. I know what I'm doing within that role, within that position, what my responsibilities, responsibilities are. So the only things I'm thinking on the ice are making the best play within my structure. I don't have to think about that extra stuff. Now, if I went to a different position, you're adding a whole new encyclopedia of knowledge that I have to learn on the fly while still trying to keep up with the game of hockey. 
I, there's no like an NHL player couldn't do that. So trying to teach like a 14 year old to do that in like a triple A game, it's not happening. So like I said, by at least here in Canada, by eight, nine, 10 years old, kids are pretty firmly established in their position, at least at like any decent level. All right. Uh, we're going to record our Patreon exclusive overtime. Uh, so we're going to wrap up this episode of the Wing Wheel podcast. Thank you all so, so very much uh, for tuning in. Let's hope that over the next three games, the Red Wings give us give us some excitement. It doesn't even have to be three wins. Let's let's see some Mo Sider emergence. Let's see some more Lucas Raymond filling the back of the net. Uh, let's see Ole Mata score probably three hat tricks based on the way that he's been playing. Be nice. It'll be a good weekend with a celebration of those uh, 97 and 98 Cup victories too. All right, we'd like to thank all of our listeners, new and old. Um, thanks for uh, tuning in through the highs and lows of the season. It's still early on. Uh, all of our Patreon supporters, um, there are a bunch of you who are new and and all of you who stuck with us. Genuinely, thank you so much. You know, things like Winged Wheel Podcast Night at the LCA can't have happened without you. Our name level sponsors, Arjun Shanker, Eves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand Foundation, Akefer, Armchair GM slash Genius, Nick Perks, Terry Driver of the number 69, Crying Ryan has been in a slam at Jamathong, Matthew M. Rice, Croner's Left Knee, Bingo Bango, The Unchained, Django, Brandon M., uh, Carl Brutina Nanaluski, Chimmy, Chris P., Citizen High Five, Connor Scovey, Coyote Season Tickets in Tempe, Derek Enstam, DJ Denton, Give Blood Fight Probert, Hassam Alkasem, Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Jacob Silverberg, Salty Tears After Scoring on His Own Net, Kalen Wood, Kevin James, King Tone, Marcus, Matt McKay, Nadelkovich, goalie number one, Nicholas Fritz, R.A., Ryan Hanna, Ryan Hanna, The Unshowered, Ryan Hubbard, Scott Martin, The Podcasting Couch, Zachary Rogers, General Andy Bohan of the Cheesebag Army, Sam Bankson, number one Detroit Red Guys fan, fan, Adam, I wish I could finish like Ernie, Adam Rose, Antonio Gracias, Babe Landiscog, Ben Barron, Brad Simmons, who is... Oh, Brad, thank you for the support. Uh, Brian Vasha, Connor Leighton, Darren Fick, Dave W., um, Disciple of Large, the Prophet of the Tower and Behemoth, Extra Frosty, Dunkaroo of Misery, uh, Philip Zadiz Nuts, Hi, I will have an order of a large fries and a pizza with two eyes and also maybe a win, James Laporte, Jeremiah Dobo, J.M. Rhapsody, John Evans, John Ingalls, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Linda Hull, Logan Burgos, Matt S., Loyal Soldier of the Cheesebag Army, Maximilian, Melissa Erickson, O. Ophelia, Papa Woody, Thick Rick, and Wee Snot. Oh, and Aaron Hudson. Thank you all so, so very much, and we will talk to you after the next three games on Sunday night. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at wingedwheelpod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.